Welcome to the first part of this podcast dialogue entitled, A Look at the Future of Biosimilars and What Physicians and Pharmacists Should Anticipate with Their Arrival on the U.S. Market. This two-part podcast series was produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational donation provided by Amgen and educational grants from Sanofi Aventis U.S. and Centicor Ortho Biotech Incorporated. The content for this podcast was adapted from a dialogue that was recorded on August 23, 2010 in Boston, Massachusetts between James H. Hoffman, PharmD, who is Medication Safety Officer at St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and A.J.K. Singh, MBBS, who is Associate Professor of Medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. Hello, my name is James Hoffman. I'm a pharmacist and the Medication Outcomes and Safety Officer at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm here in Boston today with Ajay Singh to discuss biologics and biosimilars, which is really an important uh, topic as biologics are important therapies for a variety of diseases that, that really are uh, provide innovative treatment options for patients. And in respect to biosimilars, recent legislation uh, passed earlier this year has started to provide the regulatory framework for approval of biosimilars in the United States. Uh, so Ajay, uh, please introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about your perspectives on, on biosimilars. Well, thank you, James. Um, my name is Ajay Singh. I'm a nephrologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School here in Boston. James, let me start by asking you a relatively simple question. What are biosimilars and what other terms are used to describe biosimilars? Well, well yes, uh, that question does seem simple, but there is some complexity to it, as there really isn't a single definition that all would agree on what makes a biosimilar. First off, the term generic biologic has been used, but this is really an imprecise term since a biologic can't be replicated in that uh, precise way that we can do with a traditional small molecule chemical. So a variety of terms have cropped up like follow-on biologic, post-patent biologic, biogeneric, and, and several others. And to me, what the essence of a biosimilar is, is a, a copy of the biologic pharmaceutical, or what I like to think of it as, is a therapeutic protein that's not made by the innovator, and it's improved under some sort of abbreviated regulatory process. Uh, one of the therapies that's attracted attention uh, around biosimilars uh, recently has been the approval of generic anoxaparin. And to me, anoxaparin isn't a biologic uh, in using that, that framework that I just established uh, because it's a complex sugar and not a therapeutic protein. But as we'll see, many of the, the issues uh, related to biosimilars and some of the complexities are present in uh, anoxaparin. And I think anoxaparin has been one of the recent events that have attracted some attention to the, the issue. So, so, Ajay, having defined a biosimilar, it's sort of a high level uh, what are the issues for biosimilars from various perspectives, say patients, healthcare providers, uh, the healthcare system, and payers? Well, James, the uh, biosimilar space is indeed uh, dominated by these three groups patients, healthcare providers, and healthcare system and payers. The perspectives from the patient's uh, side of things is that safety and efficacy are very important and consistency of the product is also important because it lends itself to optimizing both efficacy and safety. From the perspective of healthcare providers, uh, I think the efficacy and safety 
uh, side of things has been taken for granted and cost is really quite important. So, for example, uh, at, a, at a large uh, hospital, the head of the pharmacy and the administrative leadership will be very much concerned about how much biologics are costing them uh, at the end of the year. Similarly, for the healthcare system and payers, efficacy and safety are taken for granted. Uh, There's an assumption, particularly in the United States, uh, that the regulatory framework and the regulatory authorities will monitor and uh, take action for any safety uh, issues that might uh, arise with biosimilars. And really the key consideration, uh, again, is, is, is along the lines of cost. How much is it costing the healthcare system uh, to use an innovative protein versus uh, substituting it with a biosimilar? So I think the main thrust of, uh, of biosimilars from the perspective of the market really depends on the types or the type of group that we're, that we're dealing with. Um, James, I'm going to ask you to perhaps drill down a little bit more on this issue uh, of cost, uh, and perhaps you could address uh, what the cost of biosimilars is and what might be the potential cost savings that are generated if biosimilars are used in place of the innovative molecule. Certainly, and I think to to really answer that question, one has to take a little bit of a step back and and think about biologics more generally. These are, are very important therapies, very innovative uh, also, when you look ahead, they're the focus of, of drug development moving forward. And from an, an economic perspective, uh, because of their innovative nature and, and many other things, these are usually high-cost therapies. What we're seeing when you look at, at drug expenditure trends is that you know, traditional small-molecule drugs are going off patent. The, the growth in expenditures for these drugs is, is very modest, uh, almost negligible in some settings. But specialized therapies, many of which are biologics, it's really the area where drug expenditures are increasing the most. And what we have here is sort of a sticker shock phenomena, if you will, where the the cost of many biologics is just phenomenal and and attracts people's attention of thousands of dollars. So really, biosimilars represent an important drug cost savings opportunity over the next few years because that's where the drug costs will be, and and these are, are very expensive therapies in many cases. So what, James, are the exact cost savings for biosimilars? Uh, well, it's hard to predict precisely, but the range has been 20 to 30 percent. And this is in really big contrast to what we have come to expect with traditional small molecules. So um, with a chemical drug, once the generic market is kind of revved up, we get you know, 70, 80, 90 percent maybe uh, savings off the original brand price as uh, more competition comes into the market. This is not going to be the case with uh, biosimilars. We're thinking more 20 to 30 percent is the range, and that's been the experience that we've seen in Europe. So uh, will the cost savings with biosimilars be more uh, modest than traditional drugs um, because biosimilars are are expensive to manufacture, or are there other reasons? Uh, Well, certainly the manufacturing is a a big part of it. It's it's a much more uh, complex process to uh, manufacture any biologic and uh, so what that leads to is more production costs, more capital investment, development time. And so really all this culminates into fewer firms pursuing the development of these products and then less competition so that cost savings is, is relatively modest. Uh, however, I'd point out that even though the, uh, say, in percent terms, the cost savings is modest, these are, again, very expensive therapies. So you know, that 20% savings is, is, is still very important since it's 20% savings off of a product that costs thousands of dollars. 
So, Ajay, as I've mentioned, this uh, production process is quite different for biologics and which has implications for uh, cost savings. Are there other implications, and could you explain a little bit further uh, the differences in pr- production processes for biologics compared to traditional small molecules? Well, I think um, the first thing one needs to think about in uh, addressing the manufacturing process is consideration about what we are trying to manufacture here. As you've alluded to, uh, a biosimilar molecule is a biologic, and uh, it's a, it has a molecular weight uh, that's much larger than the molecular weight of a simple chemical. So, for example, Ipoetin alpha as a biologic and uh, poetin alpha biosimilars are several fold larger in molecular weight than a simple chemical drug such as aspirin. So we're dealing with the production of a more complex molecule just by virtue of its size. Uh, biologics are also molecules that have complex quaternary structures that need to be maintained in order to uh, maintain optimal biological activity, uh, but also uh, in order to ensure that they are safe and not immunogenic. Thirdly, biologics, especially the more complex biologics, such as, for example, opoetin, uh, are often glycosylated, so they they can't be produced in simple bacterial or um, viral cell lines and need mammalian cell lines. So with that as a background, let me give you a little bit of an insight into the production process. There are several steps in the process. Uh, the first step is to choose a living host cell, and biosimilars generally require mammalian cells because of this glycosylation issue. A poetin alpha, another example, is a highly glycosylated uh, molecule, and its biological activity and its uh, half-life are dependent on the degree of glycosylation. Once you have uh, the mammalian cell line in place, uh, you need to develop a cell bank. Uh, so you, you culture these cells, have a cell bank, and then develop a process to harvest the protein. Once the protein is harvested, the next step is to purify it. The purification step uh, is important because this step, one, eliminates uh, contaminants as well as trying to preserve the biological activity of the, of the protein at hand. Uh, there's a analytic step after purification. Uh, here, uh, one needs to be sure that the quaternary structure of the molecule is maintained, uh, that its biological activity is as one had anticipated, and that it continues to be safe in, in testing. The final two steps are storage, which is very important, how you store it, uh, what temperature, and uh, whether it's in a vial or in pre-filled syringes is, is important, uh, and then how it's handled, uh, how it's prepared for uh, distribution to sites where it will be dispensed is, is also uh, critical. That, that's certainly a complex process with a, a number of steps. Let's uh, focus in on a couple of the steps in, in further detail Ajay, tell me why uh, purification of these uh, biologics and biosimilars is so important. Well, as we discussed, the purification step uh, involves a process by which uh, one tries to get an optimal yield of the protein, but at the same time eliminate from this any contamination that might occur. Well, since biologics are produced from living cells, there's a possibility that there could be contamination by prions, viruses, uh, endotoxins, and so on. And so it's important to, on the one hand, isolate the the biologically active protein uh, that one's after, and on the other hand, try and eliminate some of the contaminants uh, that will uh, might yield safety issues uh, once these substances are injected into patients. 
The other interesting point about uh, the purification process is that it uh, represents a tension uh, between obtaining adequate yield to allow production process to be financially viable for the manufacturer versus obtaining the very purest product that's free from all contamination. And so manufacturers, as they set up their facilities, are clearly trying to get the highest yield they possibly can with the lowest risk of contamination that they can achieve in order to uh, make uh, their product uh, safe. Yeah, it certainly sounds like that would be a a challenge for for manufacturers of these products. Uh, You also mentioned storage and handling. That seems like that would be important given these are are unique products uh, compared to small molecules. Tell me a little bit more about storage and handling and the considerations that come along with that. You're absolutely right, James. Storage and handling is a, is a very important issue. Biosimilars being proteins with this complex folding and quaternary structure are very uh, vulnerable to changes in temperature, to shaking, and also to the stabilizing agent that's uh, present in the vial. Take, for example, ipoatin alpha. There's data that shows that if you store it at room temperature versus a refrigerated environment, uh, that that might result in changes in its uh, quaternary structure. Shaking uh, vigorously of the vial actually changed the folded nature of the molecule and might modify biological activity. There's also this issue around uh, the agent used to stabilize poetin. Uh, when it was produced uh, in in the United States and uh, currently it's uh, marketed in the U.S., it's stabilized with human serum albumin. When this uh, molecule was marketed in Europe, the regulatory authorities insisted that human serum albumin be substituted by tween 80. And it's thought that the substitution of tween 80 for human serum albumin changed the environment for this molecule that made it potentially more immunogenic uh, than when it was stabilized in human uh, serum albumin. As well, it's thought that using pre-filled syringes with rubber in the syringe resulted in leaching from the rubber, and that changed the uh, structure of the molecule, uh, resulting in greater aggregation. And it's thought that these factors, both the substitution of the serum albumin and the storage in pre-filled syringes, was a trigger for the spike in pure red cell aplasia cases that were seen in uh, the early 2000 timeframe. And modification of these conditions then resulted in in an attenuation in the number of cases that have been observed. So I think storage and handling is a key issue in uh, biosimilars and needs to be very carefully considered as one formulates the manufacturing process for these agents. Uh, James, because of these issues around manufacturing, what are your thoughts about the current regulatory framework and what are your thoughts about how this will evolve as biosimilars are introduced into the United States? Well, yeah, as you said, the regulatory approach is very important because of some of the unique features of biologics and biosimilars. And for many years, we were kind of speculating. We didn't really know uh, where this was headed in terms of U.S. law and regulations. Early in the 2000s, you know, FDA mentioned on several occasions they were going to develop guidance, and uh, there was a, a famous case with a generic growth hormone that kind of tested the FDA. Kind of what became clear in sort of the mid-2000s was that legislation was needed uh, in, toward, in order to develop the, the regulatory framework in the U.S., and one of the important reasons for that, sort of structurally within U.S. law, is that most biologics are regulated through the Public Health Service Act and not through the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And so since the 80s, we've had a generic approval pathway 
for drugs uh, regulated through the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. It's commonly known as Hatch-Waxman. But that didn't exist under the Public Health Service Act. So kind of all this coming together, uh, it became clear it was necessary that legislation was needed to establish this regulatory framework. Sort of from 2006, eight, you know, there was all these different bills that were put forward, and uh, some of them were quite extreme. And in 2009, we had a, a rather dramatic shift where the debate went from if we can do this, that is, develop a biosimilar pathway, that the debate shifted to how do we do it. And much of the debate in 2009 was over the exclusivity period for uh, the innovator. Enveloped in all of the healthcare reform discussions of the last couple of years were biosimilars that became part of it, and uh, it went from being these separate bills to uh, part of the larger legislation. And so what was passed as part of healthcare reform uh, earlier this year was uh, an exclusivity period for 12 years, and, and then definitions of biosimilarity and interchangeability. What was kind of left to the discretion of the FDA, however, was the exact approach uh, and what the exact pathway would be. Um, there's kind of a range of options that FDA has of combinations of animal studies, clinical studies. So there's, there's really a lot of different options that are available to FDA in, in terms of how these products are approved. So really what we see is that even though the, the regulatory framework has been established in terms of law, there's a lot we don't know yet. And so not to say that the, the law certainly was a significant step forward, but there's a lot we don't know uh, in terms of regulations, and the FDA will be putting out further guidance and, and regulations in the future. But uh, is it true that um, Europe has had a lot of experience with biosimilars? Uh, what are the key features of Europe's approach, and do you think that that will provide us with some um, help in uh, implementing uh, an infrastructure for regulation in the United States? Yes, definitely. Europe has been the leader uh, around the world in developing regulations for biosimilars. And, and so Europe is definitely a very helpful template as this comes together for the United States. You know, Europe has had these regulations since about 2003. And in Europe, the term they use, just actually, I think quite appropriate, is biological medicinal products. Uh, we talked about all the different terms at the outset that, that are used. And so this adds just one more. So in Europe, the regulations call it similar biological medicinal products. But you know, the term biosimilar is used frequently as well. And really the approach they've taken in Europe is to provide sort of high-level general guidance on various aspects of biosimilars and then to drill down into class-specific guidance. So there's class-specific guidance for insulin, growth hormone, poetin, and, and a couple of others. And this approach really makes a lot of sense. When you think about sort of the diversity and complexity of biologics, it, it's great. So uh, something like insulin or growth hormone is a relatively simple molecule. Sure, it's a therapeutic protein, more complex than uh, a traditional small molecule drug, but certainly not as complex as potin or a monoclonal antibody. So you really have this sort of range of complexity and uh, corresponding safety issues and corresponding approach to, to defining comparability. So it, it really makes sense to take this class-specific approach and, and kind of lay out for each uh, product in a class what the approach should be to approving a biosimilar, again, taking some sort of abbreviated approach to approval. So while Europe is really the world standard and a template to follow, uh, Ajay, what, what do you know about countries outside of Europe and, and other developed countries and their approach to uh, uh, biologics and biosimilars? Well, I think the most important message with respect to this uh, issue is that there's a stark absence of regulation in developing countries. 
such as India and China. Generally, these countries take the lead from Europe and the FDA with respect to regulation of medications, uh, including uh, biologics. There's little or no pharmacovigilance in place. There is really very little consideration to uh, the very important issue of traceability and to uh, interchangeability, which will become a key issue with respect to biosimilars. You know, should uh, pharmacists be able to interchange one biosimilar agent uh, from another and a biosimilar from the innovative molecule? And if there is a problem, uh, an adverse event that occurs, should we be able to or can we trace that event back to the drug that was administered? If neither of those can occur and there's no system to monitor uh, adverse of, uh, event reporting, then safety becomes a real issue in these, uh, in these countries. So I think really uh, Europe and the United States are the pace setters with respect to the regulatory structure for biosimilars worldwide. This concludes part one of this podcast. For additional information on the future of biosimilars in healthcare, please visit www.biosimcentral.org.